Hope you're having a good week, a good month. October's one of those months that just kind of flies by uh, with fall breaks and all that's happened. I feel like we're, we're a church family coming back together now after we've all traveled to Biz- Disney or the beach, one of those two, and Gatlinburg. Or we're all kind of getting back together and hope you've um, had, a, had a good break and ready to kind of uh, go through the rest of this semester for those of you in school or work and push towards the holidays. And it is kind of crazy to think about that... Um, Next Sunday, when we get together, not only is it uh, daylight savings time ends, so it's going to start getting dark like at 4.15 in the afternoon, right? Not only is it that, it is November 1st. It's kind of crazy to think about that. The next time we get together on a Sunday morning, it's November. November is the month of thankfulness, right? We, Thanksgiving is on the horizon. You feel like you're, you, October feels like you're dipping your toe into the water of fall. And November feels like you have jumped full force in. And so it's, it's always an exciting kind of month if you look towards that. And so you start to turn your attention towards things you're grateful for. Now, I want today to tell you something I'm extremely grateful for um, I've got lots on my list above this. There, there are lots of things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for my Savior and for my God and what he's done for me, for my family, for my wife. But this is definitely on my gratefulness list. Is that a name? Gratefulness list? Make it one. Make it, go make a gratefulness list somewhere, right? This is on my list of gratitude. That sounds more scholarly, right? My list of gratitude, and it is a company that produces movies. It's Pixar. Now, here's why, all right? I know that I have four children and that I am subjugated or will be to about 20 years of kids' films. Amen, right? And some of those are mind-numbingly bad. Amen? Some of you have not experienced these, apparently. Mind-numbingly bad, and on a consistent basis, Pixar makes them sort of bearable, and sometimes good, right? And so this summer, what was the big Pixar movie this past summer? Anybody remember? You all remember, and you're acting like you don't. What what was it? Here it is, in case you need it. Woo! There it is. Inside Out, all right? Those of you that don't have kids anymore are like, what is that? Like, if you have kids, you're like, "Uh, yes, we know, keep on, all right? And so inside that was this crazy kind of a movie that was inside the mind of a little girl, eye-opening in some ways, thought-provoking in some ways, which is not what you usually get with dancing penguins on the island of Africa. I mean, this was interesting and thought-provoking and all of that. And so there's a good movie. But what I love about Pixar is not only do they do good movies, but they do these short movies before the movie. Right? How many of you know this? How many of you have been to see? Okay. So you do. How many of you have not seen a Pixar movie? Stacy Sternberg, what are you doing with your life back there? So before this movie, anybody remember the movie that was before this movie? It was a volcano movie, right? There you go, David Jackson. There you go, he's there for me. It was this guy, all right? And so this guy sings a song. Um, he's there, and the movie opens, and there, this short movie's open, which I would show you part of it, but, you know, I don't want Disney to shut down the church. And so um, and so they uh, it starts out, and he's got, like, Pairs of dolphins jumping in the water and seagulls all around. And this volcano sings a song, Hawaiian kind of song, about the fact that he has always wanted someone to lava. 
You get it? Volcano, love. I want someone to lava. All right. And so he sings this song 14, 20, 30, 80 times. I don't know. In about two minutes. And as he does, he just gets colder and grayer and shorter. And he eventually sinks into the ocean. Right about that moment. That's sad enough. Right about that moment, right as he sinks into the ocean, a female volcano, I didn't, you did not know that those existed, but they do, rises out and she has heard this song underneath the surface for years and years and she comes out singing the song about someone to lava. It's just so heartbreaking, right? And eventually something happens and they are both wrestled from the bottom of the sea and they wrap around each other and they form an island. And it's this really crazy picture of love and even some pictures of biblical oneness and all that kind of stuff, which I'm sure that's what Pixar was going for was biblical oneness. But um, it's this amazing picture, but it shows this idea in our society of the need for somebody to lava, right? To somebody to be with, someone to have. And that one of the greatest fears in our lives is loneliness, which is kind of interesting because we live in a society that has become increasingly lonely. We are perhaps the most connected society in the history of the world and yet extremely lonely. I don't know if you saw on the news this week, but there was a photographer that uh, worked on a new project. And this is what he did. He he decided he would take normal pictures of people in their everyday lives, doing everyday things. And then he would remove from the photos their electronic devices. And he called it removed. We got a few of the pictures here. Right. And so, as you see, it's people doing what they do every day. They just don't have anything in their hands. And what you notice as you're looking at this is, first of all, hey, keep it there for a second. Notice these, you know, obviously he's working a hot girl. He doesn't need to be paying attention or she doesn't. And uh, he's got a hatchet, it appears. So just let the boy have the hatchet, right? And so you can keep going now, Steve. But you just, you just see these pictures and you remove those devices. And it shows you this crazy new world we have. Where loneliness is a part of who we are, even though we're right next to each other. Uh, There's an interesting book I found this week called The All Better Book. In The All Better Book, they invite elementary school kids to solve the world's biggest problems. And they ask them all kinds of questions about the ozone layer and how to help people quit habits that they've got, like smoking. But here's the toughest question maybe they post to the elementary school students, and we'll put it up on the screen. So with billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? And then they had elementary school students turn in their answers. Kalani, who's age eight, said this. People should find lonely people and ask their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And then when you have enough people and they're even on both sides, just assign lonely people to not lonely people in the newspaper and let them know where to go. Kalani is eight and obviously has a gift in administration already. Matt, who's age eight, said this. We could just get people a pet. And if that doesn't work, maybe a husband (laughs) or a wife. 
Take them places. You know, one of the others will work. I like Max, age nine, says, just make food that talks to you when you eat. (laughs) For instance, it would say, how you doing, right? What happened to you today? What happened at school today? But perhaps the most heartbreaking is this. This is Brian, age eight. Sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of those things. Now, with billions of people in the world, someone should figure out a way, a system, where no one is lonely. Here's what we see when we think about all these things. You think about the lava You think about the book with the kids answering questions. You think about the pictures of the stuff removed. Is that we all are looking for connection in our lives and we desire it. We're just not very good at it. A study recently said that they surveyed American men in an anonymous survey. Here's what they found, by the way. Uh, Mother Teresa said that loneliness is today's leprosy. No one wants to admit they have it. When they ask questions about loneliness in surveys and they ask you for your name to attach to it, people respond they're not lonely about half as often as they say they are when you say it's anonymous. But they ask American males in a survey, how many of you, what percentage of you, do you, basically the question is, have someone you consider to be a close friend other than your spouse? 90% of men in America said no. Now, it seems really high. Like, there's no way that's true. I have friends. But the way they asked the question was, not just do you have somebody that you can go watch a ball game if you want to, but do you have a confidant, a deep friendship with someone? This week, as I was preparing this message, I kept coming back to this question. Because here's what I believe. I believe, and this isn't just biblical, this is now scientific. Harvard did a 72-year study and said the um, the major conclusion from that study is that we as human beings are wired chemically and physically for relationships. And what I've come out of this is that relationships are important to our lives. We're in the midst of this series called Masterpiece, and the midst of the series, what we're talking about is how God, the verse comes from Ephesians that says that we are God's workmanship. We are His masterpiece. We are His work of art that He's displaying. And He talked over the last few weeks about how does God turn us into that? How does He develop us into that? How does He mold us into that? How does he turn us into that masterpiece? What does he do? And we talked the first week that we talked about that, just about the fact that we are his masterpiece. Then we move to the fact that he does it through practical living out of his word, that we study his word, we know his word, and then we live his word. And the week last time we were together to talk about this, we talked about the fact that he does it through our inner life, our inner change, our inner self, as we give ourselves to him. Through discipline, through prayer, through fasting. But here's a truth that I know. And I know it's because it's from my life and I know it because I see it in other people's lives is this. 
that one of the major ways God shapes you into the person that you are to become, one of the major ways God shapes you in your life is through the providential relationships that you have. Relationships have a major impact on our spiritual lives. I've talked to lots of people in my years of ministry now, um, 15 full time after seminary and five before that. So 20 years, close to 20 years of ministry and lots of people and, and almost every person I've ever talked to. when they talk about how they they grew in their faith or that moment when God really began to move in their lives or when they got it, when it clicked, when things just seemed to all line up, when they finally got it together. And almost always the story goes something like this. Well, I was doing this one day and really not living for the Lord and doing my own thing and maybe thought I had a commitment to him, but I didn't. And then I met or then I heard someone say. Or a friend at work invited me to church. Or I was sitting around with my family and my dad said. Or at work they had a, 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 a co-worker who passed away and I noticed how someone handled it. And I asked them a question. Almost every spiritual growth story I've ever heard has someone that it's in the center of it that has a relationship that has impacted them. I don't think I've ever heard someone say, well, I was just sitting in my room one day and just... Out of the blue, out of nowhere, all by myself, I decided I'm living for the Lord and changing everything about me. And I didn't need help from anybody. I just went on my own. There's always people around. I read another fascinating study this week. And this, I don't know if y'all know this or have heard this. You probably have because it's been in the news some. But the, the percentage of our young people that are leaving the church when they leave high school is alarming. I mean, somewhere... I mean, it depends on what study you look at, but it's something like 15 to 20 percent are staying, 80 to 85 percent are leaving the church. Now, some of the studies show that they start to come back in their late 20s, early 30s. Some of them show, no, they're, they, 50 percent of them leave and are gone. And so they, this youth ministry group decided they were going to do a study to figure out, well, what keeps them stay? What, those 15 to 20 percent, why do they stay? And there are three reasons they find that were common to almost every one of those students that stayed. And here they are. And the first one is for you, parents. And it's this, that they had parents who practiced faith in their home and daily life, not just at church on Sunday, but it was a regular part of their life. It was their spiritual lives, not just in the midst of we went to church on Sunday, but that they were changed and transformed. Transformed by it, and they were showing their children what it meant to live. A, a statement that I've used around here a lot, hadn't used it recently, but it's true, is that if you the gospel, if your faith, if Jesus is not real to you, it will not matter to your kids. First of all, they had parents who practiced faith in the home and their daily life. Secondly, it was they had at least one significant adult mentor or friend who practiced the faith seriously. Outside of their family, they had another adult or mentor who practiced the faith, who lived out their faith. And as a result, they saw that and said that is viable. And then lastly, it's this. They had at least one significant religious experience before age 17. Here's what I want you to see. Of the three, two of them have to do with relationships. People they knew, people they saw, people they lived with. And it's not just psychological studies and longitudinal studies and all of that kind of stuff that tells us this. Scripture reminds us of this. 
Look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 13. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The point that, by the way, who wrote Proverbs? Who wrote that? Solomon, all right? Solomon has the distinction because in Scripture, Solomon is what? The wisest man on earth, right? So whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The, the point that he's making here is if you surround yourself with people, and the Old Testament phrase wise, we think of wise, we think of like guru or really smart or great on test. The wise here means this is a person that is actively living out what God has called them to do. And he says, if you want to be wise, if you want to follow God's lead, if you want to live the life that God intended for you to live, then you must walk with those who are living the life God intended for them to live. The wise breed more wise. You know that's true in your life, right? I mean, you can probably look back over your life and see a significant spiritual growth and say, yeah, and about that time, this providential relationship showed up in my life. When I was a, a seventh grader in Dyersburg, um, the summer between my sixth and seventh grade year, uh, I was diagnosed with insulin-dependent diabetes, so 27 years ago. And 27 years ago, there wasn't nearly the understanding that there is about type 1 diabetes as there is today. And so there were a lot of things you didn't know. When I was in seventh grade, um, I was the second tallest guy in our class. Now, I was as tall as I am now in seventh grade. And you'll see Eli and think, man, Eli's tall. I was taller than Eli at Eli's age. Okay. And so I, I went out for football. I was, they were going to put, they had me on the line because I look like a lineman, right? Offensive lineman, that's what I was going to do. And I was big, I was big time into baseball. I, I played baseball. Well, I didn't play nearly as much as kids today played. Because we, nobody did. But I played when I could, played baseball through the summers. I was big time into that. I went to the doctor, and the doctor just kind of back then said, you need to kind of shut down athletic stuff till you get all this under control. So I didn't play football anymore. So I didn't go out. I didn't play middle school football. And baseball activities, I still played, but it wasn't quite as intense as it had been. And in the midst of that year, I really was trying to, I was searching, I was looking, I was trying to feel, find, okay, so who am I? What, what am I going to be? What am I going to be about? And, uh, you know, as much as you can as a seventh grade kid trying to figure that out, I just knew that my life was different. And I kind of got involved in youth group at church and was starting to kind of think about those kind of things. And they decided to do a trip. Now, think about this. I think I've told you all this before, but think about this. They decided to take a centrifuge trip of just 7th graders. And we had 35 7th graders from my church that went on a centrifuge trip together. And I wanted to go. There was a problem. I had never spent the night away from my parents since I'd been diagnosed with diabetes. I, I, was, in the, I was the guy. I had to measure insulin. I had to mix insulin before I gave it as a shot in that day. I had to think through things. I had to, I had to see how I had to check my blood sugar. And back then it was a process to check your blood sugar. And so my parents have been like, you know, you can have friends spend the night here, but you're not going to go spend the night with friends. And so I, I didn't think there was any way I'd go to camp. And then this guy came to my parents and said, hey, Lyle mentioned he wanted to go. I didn't know him very well. He said, I'd be willing to room with Lyle if you would allow that. His name was Mike McCullough. Mike had just finished school at Mississippi State. He was an athletic trainer who had helped somebody in football deal with diabetes on the football team. 
And Mike said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it and I'll be responsible. I'll make sure Lyle takes care of himself. I'll make sure everything's done like it should be. And my parents let me go. Perhaps the most insane decision of their lives. And here's what I didn't know. I mean, I knew Mike was cool because, I mean, Mike, Mike will tell you stories about he was an a athletic trainer at Mississippi State during the time when Palmero and Will uh, Clark and you baseball fans were playing football. He roomed with a guy that ended up being drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. And so he could tell you stories. about. He just, you know, he tell those cool stories. When you're a seventh grade boy, those are like the coolest stories you've ever heard. But Mike was a guy that was completely on fire for the Lord. And I didn't know it at that time. But my acquaintance with Mike McCullough would be one of the most influential relationships I ever had. He had Tuesday morning Bible studies for high school boys. And we would meet at his house at 6.30 every Tuesday. And we would, for an hour, study the Bible together. He was a guy that didn't have a family. He was single. He wasn't married yet. He's married now, has a beautiful daughter, and is still doing youth ministry back in my hometown area. I just look back at that. I didn't ask for Mike. I didn't go up to mom and go, hey, this is a guy named Mike McCullough. I think he'd be a great spiritual influence on me. And I wish you'd just let me go room with him. God just plopped him in our lap. Mike became part of the family. He spent Christmas Eve at my mama Bliss's with me. Now, I, I don't, you don't know Mama Bliss, but that was a prestigious invitation to go to Mama Bliss's for Christmas Eve. That's my great-grandmother, Bliss. All right? And I discovered this principle. When you walk with the wise, you become wise. So here's what I want you to do, all right? And some of you are just going to freak you out because you don't like talking to people. Well, you're going to talk to people, all right? Don't do it with your phone up either, all right? I want you to turn to somebody around you. Just take a minute. I want you to tell them the name and a brief, not as long as I just did because we'll all be here way too long, all right? Story of how they impacted your life and helped you grow spiritually. All right. Now think of somebody outside your family. Yes, if you go home this afternoon, tell your spouse how much they've meant to you spiritually, but we don't need that in here. All right. Just somebody outside your family that that has influenced your life. All right. Go. All right. If you haven't switched, the other person needs to tell now. All right. Otherwise, we're going to get caught in a vicious loop. Okay. All right. Everybody back this way. All right. If you didn't get your chance to share. Blame the person next to you, all right? All right, here's the thing, all right? This is a great verse. Everybody back with me over here? You still talking? This is a great verse, Proverbs 13, 20. But there's a second part of this verse. This isn't where it ends. Whoever walks in the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You see, this is one of those things. I, I firmly believe that God uses relationships to spiritually grow us. But relationships are so powerful that we are allowed by our Creator to make choices about who we align ourselves with. You can walk with the wise and you become wise, but if you walk with the fools, you become foolish. This is a principle that we all would understand and say, I see that, that's, yeah, that's right. But it's not easy to put into practice. We've all seen ourselves and we've all seen other people that, you know, this is one of those things that I told first service, I'll tell you, youth, if you could figure this out right now and live through your high school years with this in mind, 
aligning yourself with the wise to become wise or being the companion of fool will make you a fool. It would end so much heartache and grief and issues. It's not just youth that deal with that. We as adults deal with it as well. You can almost see it sometimes. You see somebody and a new friendship starts to form and you go, that is not going to be good. You may not say that because then you're like the fuddy-duddy, party pooper, nobody likes you person, right? Like, I don't think you two need to hang out with each other. Well, you just don't want us to be friends. No, I don't. <laughs> not because I'm jealous, because the companion of fools will suffer harm. And sometimes you see it like, oh, I'm so glad those two linked up because they're both seeking after the Lord and it's going to be so good. They're going to be so encouraging to one another. I'm so excited about that. This principle, this general principle from Scripture works. Amen? This is it. And think about your own life. You could follow kind of the curve of your own life of seeing your spiritual growth and development and troughs and peaks. And sometimes you can even look and say, oh, right before I really started to grow, God brought this person into my life. Or, man, when I started to slip, I started hanging out with them. God wants to use the relationships in our lives. That's the question you have to begin to ask yourself. A question you probably have never even asked yourself, but this is a question to ask. How do I leverage the relationships in my life for spiritual growth? How do I put myself in a place where the relationships are going to help me to grow spiritually? Because this isn't the only place that reminds us that the companion of fools will suffer harm. Even in the New Testament, there's a a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that says this, and when I was in high school, I had a, a couple of nerds in my youth group like me that used to make a joke out of this. But it's, you, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And they would add, it makes good music. I don't know. Some of you 70s and 80s rock people will get that. But I actually went to a bad company concert one time. I've tried to forget that many times. All right. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It doesn't say it might. It doesn't say there's a possibility that bad company could cause a problem. It says bad company will do what? Ruin good morals. Now, here's the thing. This is interesting to me. It's fascinating to me. Does anybody know what 1 Corinthians 15 is about? Anybody remember that? I know it's not Easter, so we don't, we think this is one of those passages we preach only at Easter. You know it is open book. You can cheat if you want to. 1 Corinthians 15 is about Paul confronting throughout their bad theology about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, the whole point of the major point of that chapter is Jesus rose from the grave. And if there are people teaching you he didn't, he did. And the idea is don't be corrupted by people that are trying to tell you something that's not true. Bad company ruins good morals. And so if we know this principle, if we know that Scripture teaches that we ought to be in a place where our relationships strengthen our love and our desire to grow spiritually. And how do we leverage that for the kingdom of God? How do we leverage that? Well, the simple answer comes in Romans chapter 12. Turn there if you've got a Bible or turn on your Bibles or whatever you got there. Turn to Romans chapter 12. And here's the reality. This is one of those principles that you can Put into practice on a regular basis. Surround yourself with the wise. Become one of the wise and live in that. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 4 says, For as in one body we have many members, 
And not all the members have the same function. Aren't you glad everybody in the world is not like you? Amen? Aren't you glad that there are people that are different than you? I want you to turn to the person next to them and tell them you are so glad you are not like them. All right? Now turn to them and say, and I am really glad you're not like me. Right? Here's the thing, all right? We are different. Amen? Right? And because we're different, and you ever had somebody, don't point please, that just agreed with everything you said? Yes, people. And, they, and the first few times they do it, you're like, man, that's awesome. I love this guy. It's like the greatest guy ever. He agrees with everything. And then eventually you're like, could you have an opinion, please? Like, be different. That's why I don't trust couples that tell me they've never fought. Because they're lying, right? Amen. Thank you. Like, you're different. You're going to have disagreements. It's Rick Warren that has always said, if two people are exactly the same, one is unnecessary. You don't need them. Right? So there are disagreements. There are problems there. And he says we are different. We have different functions. But we're still one body. Remember the question they asked the, uh, the elementary school kids? You'd think by now somebody would have invented something to help with all of this? He did. It's called the church. We don't have the same function. We're different. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Now we're going to talk about that part about it next week a little bit more because another way that God uses uh, events and things in our lives or another way that God grows us into that masterpiece is that He shapes us when we serve. And so we're going to talk about service next week. But before that, you've got to be a part of something. We are one body in Christ. I love this. It says we are individually members one of another. This is what we have to understand. That, that Scripture teaches over and over and over again that we were not created just to believe and to be saved by Christ. We were created also to belong to one another. We are created not just to believe but also to belong. There is no such thing in Scripture in the New Testament as a follower of Jesus Christ who's not a part of a church. There's no such thing. The only people in the New Testament that are not part of a church are those that are under church discipline. That's because they've been told they can't come anymore. In the New Testament, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of a church. I love how the message paraphrase paraphrases Romans chapter 12. And I don't use the message paraphrase that often because sometimes it's a little weird. It's honestly going to get a little weird here in a minute with this, but it's good, all right? In this way, we are like various parts of the human body. Each part, I love the way it says this, gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. So it says, listen, you don't come into the body of Jesus Christ. You don't come into the church at First Baptist Gillisville and the church suddenly has meaning because you're here. You have meaning because you're here. I don't think y'all got that, all right? It's not like you join and somehow our church now has meaning because we are so glad we got you. Now, we are glad if you join our church. Don't get me wrong. But it's not like the church suddenly becomes something it wasn't. You do. The body we're talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Then It says this in the next part of this. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body. Now that I love this. But as a chopped off finger 
or cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? Don't you like that? I mean, it's Halloween, right? We can talk about chopped off fingers and cut off toes, right? And that's a great visual image, right? That if you're not, if you're doing your own thing, you're like a cut off toe sitting over there. I mean, people this week are going to come up with all kinds of cute little dishes to act like you're eating people's cut off toes, right? You dip down in there. It's probably on Pinterest. You can find lots of them. But you, nobody wants to be a cut off toe. Amen. Anybody want to be a chopped off finger, right? My girls were freaked out yesterday because the guy, a guy just walked up to us at Jersey Mike's and uh, started to show us the, the disappearing thumb, you know, like I took my thumb off. You know what I'm talking about? And they were like, well, how do you do that? What, how do you do that? And so nobody wants to be that. And yet we got people who are trying to live their Christian life as cut off fingers, chopped off toes. And so here's the thing. If you want to have your life grow spiritually, you need to surround yourself with people who are growing spiritually. Now, that does not mean we cut off all contact with the outside world. I mean, we're going to talk next week about the mission of God in our lives. But it does mean that your closest relationships ought to be with people who are growing spiritually and seeking Christ. Because you walk with the wise, you become wise. But you walk with the foolish, you suffer harm. And so here's the question. Who are you walking with? For some of you in this room, you've got relationships that, if you're honest with yourselves, would need to go if you're going to put the priority on them about people that are going to be spiritually invigorating to you, people that are going to help you grow spiritually They may be fun. You may have a great time with them. It may be just an awesome experience, but they're not. They're not pushing you spiritually at all. They may be cool, make it some status, make it to do cool stuff with them. But they're not challenge you spiritually at all. They may offer the opportunity of advancement at work or in social status, but they're not pushing you spiritually at all. And you've devoted your relationships completely to people that aren't challenging you spiritually. For some of you in this room, that means that you need to make sure you're a part of a local congregation and that you are plugged into it. You're not that cut off toe or chopped off finger. That you are integrated into the fellowship of believers and that you are working and serving and a part of that family, whatever that means. One of, one of the things that happens in churches is that you begin to, to see those differences come together. And you, as you work together through things and as you grow spiritually, you become a better person because you aren't isolated in your own self-centered world thinking that everything you believe is right. You're challenged. You're motivated. They hold you accountable when things start to slip in your life. When you start into a relationship with the foolish and they say, listen, I just don't think that's good for you right now. I just don't think that's right for you right now. And they pull you back in and help you to see the error of your ways. That's what church is about. You join and do in the mission of the world and what God has called us to do. You serve in the midst of the local church. The only organization that Jesus gave as the way to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You serve with them. 
And for some of you in this room, you're a part of this church, at least in name. You have your membership here, but you haven't engaged in that. You're, you're, you may not be cut off, but you're dangling. And for some of you, you're here and you visit. Maybe it's your first time you visit. Like, whoa, that's a full court press on day one. But maybe it is that you're looking for a place to plug in and say, this is where I want to be a part and I want to serve. Some of you have been here a lot. Like weeks, months, years. And for whatever reason, you still haven't committed your life to this is where God is feeding you and where you're being used and it's time to join. At First Baptist, we have three ways you can join. First of all, you just say, I used to be part of another Baptist church. I've been saved. I've been baptized. Part of another Baptist church. I want to come join. We join. Second way is to say that, that I, I, I wasn't a part of a Baptist church, but I've been, I've been saved there. I've been, baptized, I've been saved in another place. I've been baptized after that, and I want to be a part of the church. Or I've been saved, but I've never been baptized, and I want to be baptized and be part of the church. And the last way is simply to say, I've never given my heart and my life to Jesus Christ, and I want to do that for the first time today and be a part. In the New Testament, there's no such thing as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, who's not part of a local church. And so maybe today, your decision is that. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. The band's going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to be standing down here in the front. I don't love to talk to you about any of that. Maybe you, for the first time, want to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you say, no, this is the place I want to join. Though. This is the place I want to be a part of. This is where I want to serve. This is the body that I want to join into. Or maybe you just need to come and pray and say, God, I need you to show me the relationship in my life that are good for my spiritual growth and those that are harming it. Now, the truth is, most of us in this room don't have to pray that prayer. We know the answer already. Maybe it's to pray for courage, to seek after those that are going to challenge you spiritually and to run away from those that are going to take you down. Let's pray together.